The Elements contains language and material that may be distressing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. staring in the face of danger, the brain's hypothalamus is activated. It initiates a series of chemical releases and nerve cell responses. Adrenaline is released into the bloodstream, our heart rate increases, and our awareness, sight and impulses all intensify and quicken. But there's something else that pushes us to survive. Something beyond activated chemicals or nerve responses. It's something unique to us all something that can't easily be calculated. I'm Stuart Diver, and this is The Elements. you just got to fight for yourself. Everyone is an equal when they're at sea. As we go to air tonight, New South Wales is in the grip of a major bushfire emergency. Which you don't believe in heaven, I know hell does exist because we've seen it. This is Earth. The Newcastle earthquake. Thursday, December 28th, 1989. Located at the mouth of the Hunter River, Newcastle is New South Wales's second biggest city, with a population of just over 300,000. Built on the foundations of blue collar industries such as steelworks and mining, the locals here are known as Novocastrians, and they're a proud bunch. We make steel comparable to any in the world. We make more than half the steel produced in Australia. Steel for every town and city in the country. Steel for Britain. Steel for India. Steel for China and Africa. Steel for the world. So steel was what we did. It was butch and it was tough and, and we made steel and steel ran Australia and and that's why we were important, because we were the steelworks. That's Julie Baird, historian and director of the Newcastle Museum. You know, it just kept ticking and kept making steel and did that thing up there and out of sight, out of mind. And I think that for a lot of Novocastrians, they like to keep it that way. But there's something else that's been in Newcastle long before any of the steelworks or mines arrived. They're called tectonic plates, and they've been shifting deep beneath the surface of Newcastle for tens of thousands of years. So Aboriginal dreaming for Nobbies, which is our iconic harbour rock, the dreaming story is of an angry kangaroo that after he's been pursued by wallabies and, and hidden himself in the harbour as rock, every once in a while he gets really annoyed and he shakes his tail, he bangs his tail against the earth and the earth shakes and that's the kangaroo that's mad. So we know that in Aboriginal culture, earthquakes were part of Newcastle. We've always had them. Earthquakes actually occur quite frequently in Australia. According to Geoscience Australia, we experience over 100 annually. But they generally happen in remote areas and are so weak that you wouldn't even know one is happening. But every now and then we experience a black swan event, 
an incident that arrives completely out of the blue and causes mass destruction. Oh my God, we're having an earthquake. Wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Can you feel that? Okay, this is interesting. There go the lights. Oh. What makes these events so devastating is not just the size of the earthquake, but the location where it occurs. While seismologists can predict areas that are more likely to sustain an earthquake, along the rim of the Pacific Ocean, for instance, there is still no way of knowing when and where the next one will hit. One thing is for certain. When a powerful earthquake hits a densely populated area, only disaster follows. December 28th, 1989, 10.15am. The sun shines brightly over Newcastle as it eases into another lazy day of holidays. It's that time between Christmas and the New Year when everything stops and you forget what day of the week it is. For retirees Norm and Miriam Duffy, it's the perfect opportunity to sign up for their 1990 memberships at their favourite venue, the Newcastle Workers' Club. Located in the heart of the city, the Workers' Club is an institution in Newcastle running the pokies during the day and hosting union events and rock gigs at night. So the oldies went in the morning and they played the pokies and and had a chat and a bit of a shandy and then at night the kids would come and see the bands. And it was right in the centre of town and it it was an iconic building. When Norm and Miriam enter the workers' club, there's already a bit of a hum to the place. Pensioners play the pokies downstairs, sipping on a quiet morning beer, while roadies amble up and down the stairs, carrying stage equipment for tonight's concert. The gig is a sellout, with thousands of locals set to see the legendary music acts, Crowded House, Split Ends and Boom Crash Opera. It's one of the best lineups they've had all year. The buses weren't running to the workers to take the people for the pokey, so it was only the hardcore diehards. It was the, it was the people who drove in, it was... Uh, the people who lived around the corner and walked to to the workers' club. Even with about 100 people inside, the workers' club is quieter than usual because of the bus strike. So Norm and Miriam get their membership sorted quicker than they thought. The sound of the pokies draws them in, so they head over for a game or two. After all, what harm could there be in trying your luck? Across town, local news reporter Ross Hampton and cameraman Stuart Osland interview a union official about today's bus strike. We hope that, uh, that something good comes out of this. Mm. Union management relations, though, how would you describe them? Terrible. An earthquake is created by a sudden release of energy deep in the Earth's crust, causing seismic waves to rise to the surface. Newcastle has no idea what's hit them. Are you away? Yes. Get the mic up high. Well, this is Beaumont Street, Hamilton, just minutes after the blast or the explosion or the earthquake, and it looks as though a bomb has hit. Bombs have hit all along here. It's like a war scene. People are standing around just dazed. There has been some loss of life, it appears, and buildings all up and down the street have just collapsed into the roadway. The room just shook. Everybody got thrown onto the floor. It sounded like a big bang. And I thought, and then the shaking, and I thought, oh, it must be a bomb going off. And I asked one of the girls, and she said, there's a bomb going off. Thousands across Newcastle are injured and many feared dead. Tens of thousands of buildings are damaged or have collapsed entirely, with the power and phone lines down across the region. Chaos reigns. 
the realization dawns that damage has not been confined to just a few brick walls. Could it be mine subsidence in the honeycombed earth beneath the city? Has there been an explosion in the city's gas mains? Or worse? Plumes of black smoke pour out of Newcastle's BHP steelworks. Everyone in the city is linked to the BHP steelworks and knows someone who works there. It's the lifeblood of the town. No. Let's make up people working at BHP. Move it away, thanks. Go on. Ambulance headquarters in Hamilton and the Newcastle Police Headquarters are damaged and evacuated for fears they might collapse. At the Royal Newcastle Hospital, the sick and injured are hurried into tents on the sidewalk or pitched on the beach. With less than a quarter of their normal workforce available, the scenario is a nightmare for emergency first responders. At the time, there's about nine paramedics. So, you know, there's more dead than paramedics. There was chatter on the uh, police radio systems, but it was police calling other police, police asking for information from the stations, and uh, it was a lot of chatter going nowhere. Nobody knew what had occurred. Acting Police Chief Superintendent Ian Park, barely able to see through the clouds of dust and debris, briefs the commander at Wall's End and races back to Newcastle Police Station in the centre of town. I could see the destruction, I could see the people massing, I could see the rescues occurring in Beaumont Street, and I could see lots and lots of destruction in the inner city area uh, in King Street and the like. The pub, the Kent, had its awnings fall down and there was a woman with a two-year-old in a stroller and the two-year-old was underneath the awnings. So the people on the street just started pulling rubble off. So you see people in thongs and shorts and singlets throwing bricks and and grabbing uh, iron and, you know, big bikies helping and all that kind of stuff. And just that sense that everyone gathered together. It won't be the first time Novocastrians put themselves in harm's way to help each other, but they can't do it all by themselves. They need professional emergency assistance and they need it fast. Enter Newcastle paramedic and firefighter Alan Playford. The side fell out of headquarters. It's a two-storey building. So it was chaos there. And the radio went out and people were just coming in. Uh, Mrs Bloggs was trapped in, in her house at 51 Krebert Street, Mayfield, and they put it on a spike because the radios had gone. And uh, I swapped uniforms. My captain said, you might be better as a paramedic in there. And that's how I changed uniforms. And I went up as a, an intensive care paramedic that day. Alan Playford is a respected first responder. He starts December 28th as a fireman, but will spend the rest of the day as an intensive care paramedic. So I'm standing there just getting out of fireman's gear they said, can we send you and Bruce down to Beaumont Street? It's chaos down there, you know? Playford rushes to Beaumont Street, where the full scale of the disaster is only beginning to unfold. We had one lady with a leg cut off and she hosed to death. We had another bloke under the Kent Hotel crushed to death. There were two kids trapped under the rubble there and we were busy in a big brick parade trying to get them out. Playford can see the BHP steelworks on fire from Beaumont Street but with no information coming through, it's hard to know who needs help the most. To me, it looked like it the did. BHP had blown up. It did. Because there's great volumes of smoke out over the BHP. Speaking with Playford here is Michael Duffy, the son of Norm and Miriam Duffy. When the earthquake hits, 
Michael is enjoying a quiet morning at home with his girlfriend in the Newcastle suburb of Mayfield. Well, the crockery started just flying out, smashing on the ground, you know. <laughs> it was like in slow motion, you know. This is rocking back and forwards and smash, smash. No inkling of how involved I was going to be, mind you. At that stage, I was just like all these other people looking around and, you know. While Michael and his siblings are all accounted for in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, no one has heard from their parents, Norm and Miriam. No answer from the, uh, my parents' place. They lived at a Whitebridge. It's on the coast there near Charlestown, you know. When acting police chief superintendent Ian Park arrives at Newcastle Police Headquarters, he finds the garage doors jammed, blocking any police vehicles from getting out. The cops are stranded, unable to assess the scene and put any plans into action. And when I went in, I found that the whole of the police station was in darkness and there was no electricity, no lights. All the phones had been put out of action. And I'd found out that uh, on top of the lift well or near the lift well, there had been a, a huge water tank. Park climbs three flights of stairs in the dark to reach his office on the third floor, but it too has no power. The shake had broken apart and water had flushed down the whole of the lift well, putting the lifts out of business. The pipe had also had been connected to the emergency generator and the emergency generator couldn't operate because of the water. So I was in darkness in my office. In 1989, mobile phones and the internet are not widely available. Park has no means of communication to reach his squad and get emergency help to where it's needed most. Then he catches a break. The communications room has backup power and the radio suddenly sparks to life. I was listening and I was aware of what was going on, but my job was to make sure that the information about the earthquake was timely, as quick as I could, and that it was correct because there was a lot of information coming in that we didn't want to send the police or the ambulance or other people to the wrong place for the wrong reasons. Word filters through that the BHP fire is harmless and no one is injured. It was a controlled burn to prevent any instability in the steelworks after the quake. Tensions ease, but only for a moment. This probably was a, seemed to be the worst scenario. Is nah. Newcastle. Newcastle Workers apparently just I was, collapsed. Oh. I was in Newcastle Workers Club and the whole club just collapsed. Just, were, just about, yeah. yeah. You were in the club. Yeah, yeah. What, what happened? It just shook and everything just caved in. The walls caved in? Yeah, in inside the club. Poker machines going down everywhere. Very soon afterwards, it became evident that the main trauma problems for Newcastle was Hamilton where people had been killed in the street by the roofs falling on them, and the workers' club, where there were a, an unknown number of people that had been killed and an num unknown number that were being treated. The rescue operation narrows to the Newcastle Workers' Club, which has almost completely collapsed. With 100 people inside, it's a miracle anyone is walking out alive. It's just bedlam in there. It's uh, just, you know, it's just junk and concrete and everything everywhere. You know, there was people everywhere, um, and uh, just had to do what we could. You know, we find each person as we came to them. You know, there was people behind other people as well. So it was, uh, it was just a mess. So we were standing there when the earthquake happened inside the actual club, and that's when the roof fell down. We could see the roof fall onto the paper machines. That's Belinda Duff 
who was 18 at the time and had only arrived at the workers to buy concert tickets minutes before it fell down. My friend grabbed my hand and said, come on, let's go. So we went, ran down the stairs. So I do recall it was all dusty outside the club, not knowing, I don't know, I don't know if we really realised to the extent what had happened. People were talking outside going, oh, a plane's crashed, this has happened. Belinda and her friend are in the east side of the workers when the quake hits. It's the only remaining structure in the building that's still standing. I remember sitting at home watching all the footage thinking, oh my God, if we'd have only probably been a couple more minutes, we'd have walked into the club where it actually had collapsed. So the one section we happened to be standing is still stood. So it was a bit, I don't know, it's one of those things, I suppose. <laughs> It's hard to comprehend why some people are luckier than others in a natural disaster. There aren't any easy answers, and it can play on your mind if you let it. For in another section of the workers' club, Norm and Miriam Duffy are trapped, pinned under tonnes of twisted concrete and thick layers of dust, unable to move. It'll be hours before anyone finds them. What stage of rescue operations reached now? Well, the situation is that we've got a, a lot of people out... I've got 13 people who've been taken out so far and are in a satisfactory condition. Uh, as far as I know, there is one possible dead, but not confirmed at this stage. And there is a lot of other people trapped. We don't know how many. And my partner was an Ambo, and he came to me and he said, Al, there's a message come from the radio saying they need you urgently at the workers' club with all your paramedic gear, and they're going to try and match you up with Neville Greaves. I said, oh, that... You know, good bloke to be doing this with, you know. So I went urgently to the workers' club, met Neville there, and then we tried to get an idea of what was happening. Alan Playford makes his way to the workers' club. The scene he finds there is even worse than what he witnessed on Beaumont Street. And when I got there, the chaos was three times what it had been down in Beaumont Street. The place was still cement dust flowing out into the streets to the degree you couldn't see, you know? So chaos reigned, you know? And we tried to stop firemen that were running into the building. Fellas, where where are you going? Oh, there's people trapped up on the top floor and we're getting them out, you know? The fire brigade did a good job. They came down from headquarters at Cooks Hill and they'd been racing into the upper levels of the workers' club and getting people that were lightly trapped. There's a, there's a lot of uh, large machinery there, poker machines and a, a safe door, uh, some toilet cubicles, uh, but the site is a scene of absolute devastation inside there. In any rescue operation, time is against you. The temptation is to rush in with all guns blazing, throwing strategy and planning out the window in order to save lives. A human chain has formed at the workers with firemen, staff and civilians removing rubble to try and free those trapped deeper below. While their intentions are good, they are putting themselves and others in danger. It's a bad thing in rescuing if you've got to rescue the rescuers or if the rescuers get killed trying to retrieve a dead body. The workers' club is incredibly unstable. The Easter Mall is shaking, threatening to fall and there's fears of an aftershock. Even the tiniest shake could cause the remaining structure to collapse, killing countless rescuers, staff and civilians. A similar situation happened in Threadbow when I was trapped in the landslide in 1997. 
there were 19 people buried under tons of concrete and mud in the middle of winter, and everyone was desperate to help. But there were threats of another landslide, and people were forced away by police. What followed was an extremely delicate and strategic operation that took 65 hours, nearly three days to pull me out alive. I was the only one rescued. The decision to remove people from Threadbow angered locals at the time, but it was the right call. It was just too dangerous. Nearly a decade prior to my ordeal, a young police constable is trying to tell people at the workers the exact same thing, but no one is listening. So he said, right, we've got to get all these... This bloody place is going to kill dozens of people. Well-intentioned people, but they're all going to be killed. What happens, and I can say it 30 years later, a big dispute happened between the fire brigade and the police. There's a stalemate between emergency services. The fire brigade doesn't want to be pushed around by the police, least of all by a lower-ranking officer. We'd been having a problem with police, fire brigade and ambulance rescues for years. And it should never have happened, but it did. We didn't know who was in there. They're all doing a good job. So you had to be a little bit sensible, bring them out and find out what's going on. A higher ranking police sergeant arrives and takes over. He has a great deal of experience in emergency response and commands respect. And he said, uh, oh, Al, you're here, Nev, you're here. Righto, he said, you blokes are going to be essential because I think there'll be people trapped with compression in here. And um, he said, uh, I think they've got the superficial injuries like this lady, Jennifer, I think from upstairs. I'm going to put a halt to it. When he announced that to the fire brigade, the fire brigade said, they were incensed. They, you can't stop us, you know. He said, I can stop. It's a state of emergency. You are forthwith not going in. Well, there was consternation on the footpath. He said, the only people going in is the police rescue and the paramedics. But the sergeant gets his way. The fire brigade backs down and the operation is handed over to police rescue and the paramedics. The police rescue sergeant purely made that decision in the interests of saving lives because had there been a fall with all these lit ants in there, there'd have been 40 oh. or 50 people killed. Mm. You know, no, no risk at all. So it went from a buzzing little enterprise to a very lonely one. After assessments are made, Playford receives his orders. Make your way into the western side of the club where skilled paramedic Mal Martin is waiting. Grasping their medical equipment and gritting their teeth, Alan Playford and Neville Greaves step carefully into the rubble of the workers' club. Mal was already in there. He'd gone straight up from headquarters and he was, much to his credit, he was down there mm. with another fellow called Albert Bender who had about oh, yes. four or 500 tonnes across Mr. his Bender. middle. He was totally squashed, you know? Yeah. And Albert's story is one where he was completely crushed so he was only receiving the blood that he had in him from his umbilicus to his brain. And Mal said he'd been there for 15 minutes before and he got two lines into him. Albert Bender's leg is crushed under tonnes of concrete and he's losing a lot of blood. While Mal is trying to replace blood and keep him alive, Bender is also fighting crush syndrome. We were sent up there because we had the Life Pack 5 ECG monitor for the crush syndrome. That's the only reason we were sent there. 
Crush syndrome is a condition that develops when skeletal muscles are crushed for long periods of time, forcing toxins to be released into the bloodstream, leading to kidney failure, heart attack and death. Some patients may become cheerful at the moment they are pulled out but die shortly after as the toxins rush to their heart. This sudden failure is grimly nicknamed the Smiling Death. So I said, how long have we got? And he said, you'd be gone 10 minutes. He said, but all these voices are coming from in that, that um, mess of um, reinforcing steel and concrete in there, and there's got to be people alive in there. He said, maybe you and Nev can start on that. And so Neville and I started on Norm. When the earthquake hits, Norm and Miriam Duffy are on the first floor of the building. They were playing the pokies when two storeys of the workers fell on top of them. This sub-basement that Norm was buried in is hard to describe, but this labyrinth of reinforcing steel was like a cage across them. And then you couldn't quite see people in there because the cement dust was like that thick on their, on their skin. Um, so we had to go up on top because they were topped by poker machines. Oh, that's right. And the bottom where we were standing, we were, we were like ankle deep in money. So much money you've never seen in your life. As the machines exploded, just spilt money everywhere. As Playford and Greaves navigate a sea of silver and gold coins, the shadow of a man becomes visible. Covered in layers of dust and rubble, a hint of his orange state emergency suit peers through. I said, oh, good night, mate, because it was totally dark in there. Everything you did was torchlight and the cement dust was so thick, it was like the worst smoky day in Sydney you know, you've seen recently, you know. And this fellow's out of the gloom in this orange suit, see. And Nev and I said, mate, um, can you help us start on these poker machines? No, not budging. He said, I can hear voices down there. I've been doing a good job talking to them. I said, oh, that's fantastic. Um, terrific to hear. How many voices can you hear? And he said, oh, one bloke, I think, and that was your dad. <laughs> and I uh, said, oh, that's good. Well, maybe now if you're in the SES, you can help us start. He said, I'm not moving. And I said, mate, we don't have time for this. This place is shaking like a leaf. We'll all be bloody well crushed to death, you know? So let's get cracking, eh? And no, not moving. According to the Emergency Services Act, it's illegal for an officer to obstruct or hinder another in a disaster without just cause. While there are intricacies to the act, stopping a fellow first responder from doing their job without authority is not looked on lightly by the law. The maximum penalty is two years imprisonment. And I said to him one stage, mate, that back wall is moving. That, it'll crush you to death. If it comes in, it'll crush everyone. If you're not essential, you're not going to help us go out. Turned around, Gary Butt was there from the police rescue. And I said, meet Ed, that's his <laughs> nickname, meet Ed, get this arsehole and get him out of here, see? So meet Ed comes up on the top of the poker machine, clump, you know, frog marches this bloke out of the thing, and they arrested him under the emergency services thing. Turned out he was a hoaxer. He, he was just out on the centre island, saw a pair of SES overalls laying around because people, it was just chaos out there. He's put them on, raced into the workers' club, he's going to be a hero, see? For someone to pose as an emergency first responder during a disaster, putting lives at risk simply beggars belief. With the hoaxer out of the way, 
Playford gets to work trying to get to Norm, Miriam and the others. The main thing in their way? The pokies. We did it with pipes that were broken off, reinforcing steel that was busted off. Get some rescue squads here so we can get some equipment. <laughs> there was just nothing. And this voice is coming below. You know, we're okay and, you know, thinking, my God, you know. So we were prizing the poke machines apart with steel pipes and bits and pieces that were being handed to us, you know. And gradually we opened up a big hole and that's when you could see down with the torch into Norm, but you couldn't make him out because he was covered in cement and it was just a voice coming out of cement. I said, um, mate, are you there by yourself? He said, no, there are other ladies here with me and uh, my wife's here. And I said, okay, you, you, you don't know how many? I, no, I don't know how many. And I said, well, look, I'll come down to you shortly and we'll, we'll see what we can do about getting you out, you know? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Just as Playford and his team prepare to go into the hole, an alarm rings out. Okay, well, I think at this stage, we've got to keep away from the building. We've got to try and keep everybody out. There's a fear there's going to be a second tremor. Yes, that is possible. That is possible. We're uh, taking precautions for that. Um, I think what we've got to do now is to uh, make sure people realise that uh, they won't have time to run. This thing will hit and you won't have time to, you'll only have time to blink your eye. So they've got to move. Instructions come through. Evacuate the site immediately. Mal Martin, Alan Playford and Neville Greaves are reluctant to leave, but they must follow orders. They exit the site and wait impatiently on the sidewalk, anticipating the aftershock to arrive. But after 10 minutes, nothing comes. It's a false alarm. They hurry back into the club and tragically find Albert Bender has succumbed to his injuries. While little could have been done to save Bender's life, Playford and his team regret not being there with him when he died. The longer you're exposed to emergency work, it teaches you how to be empathetic toward people but withdraw yourself so you can make conscious decisions of what what I'm going to do next would be best for my patient, Mm. would be best for saving their life, best for those around them, you know, and we used to call it directing traffic. We would arrive at a scene and start directing traffic. Right, you do this, I want you there, I want that rescue gear in here, you know, and start to position. Out of chaos, you can bring a sense of direction if you have that um, exposure over a long period to emergency work. There's no time to waste. Mal Martin directs traffic as Playford and Greaves go back to the basement. 
They've created a hole to the basement where Norm, Miriam and the others are trapped. But how do they get down there? Got the poker machines pulled apart. No ropes. We need a, another rescue truck that's got ropes and whatever. No, no, no. The firemen have got a fire truck out. Grab a fire hose off it and put the fire hose around me <laughs> and tied a big knot in the front yeah. of the fire hose and they lowered me three metres into where Norm was. And it was, it was only, only me that could fit because whilst it was in a V-shape, it was all, also concave. So it was V'd at one side like this and it was concave at the other, you know? It was like a cone, if you like. And here's four people trapped in the bottom of it. Playford is lowered into the tiny dark room. No bigger than three by three metres, it's like a small tomb, enclosed by twisted metal, concrete, pokies and something else. And the other thing that was hanging over your dad was a car. Oh, was it like a prize or something? No, it was oh, one the ca- of the cars that were parked in the basement. Oh. And the basement had snapped, floor had snapped off and this car was hanging by two wheels. The car had, the car had, there's the, the floor. Yeah. And then it, the floor snapped off and the floor completely went into the bottom with your dad. And this car had rolled over the edge but managed to cling on by <laughs> its front wheels and its mudguard was holding on to the concrete up there. And it wasn't the only car. There were several of them like that, but it was the one directly over your, your dad's yeah. issue, you know. With a car hanging over him, surrounded by dust and incomplete darkness aside from his small headlamp, Playford needs to move fast. You could see the, the reinforcing had have chunks of concrete stuck to it, you know, where they'd broken off, and you could see them twang. Uh, when they, yeah. They would, and then they'd get, you know, as it evened out, smaller and smaller, and, and then Mal said what he was worried about was this back wall behind where your dad was, up above, that extended up. It was, it was um, mm. teetering, you know? So it was, and I, people have asked me about that, and I said, I just put it out of my mind, and just concentrated on talking to Norm. Getting because further even further with it still, yeah. you know, if you've disturbed the wrong brick. Yes. You know, so it was a pack of cards in there. <laughs> Playford has to be extremely careful where he steps. One wrong move could risk the lives of those trapped beneath him and his own. And when I was lowered in, I stood on the first lady and she screamed. She had a busted pelvis and I stood on it. Oh, my because you couldn't tell she no. out the cement dust. No. And I, sad to say, I didn't know your mum was beside her. Mm. And your mum, when I uncovered her, I brushed, because I had to get a handle on who was who yes, the zoo, you know? And I brushed a lot of the concrete off and I could see this lady was dead and that's your mum. Yeah. I'd stood on this lady with the pelvis and I'm trying to pacify her because she's screaming like mad. <laughs> As you and, and Norm's saying, you'll be right, love, you'll be right. And he's trying his best and he's trapped. He's, they're all, fa- your mum was facing toward Newcastle South. Yeah. This lady was facing the same way as her. Norm was facing the other way. He was facing back toward the beach. So he's with, his, with all this stuff on his mm-hmm. leg, trapped by his legs. Then on the other side of him, but further down in a conical sort of a entrapment is this woman. And I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting, you know. 
Playford makes a grim discovery. Miriam Duffy is dead. Norm doesn't know she's dead. She hasn't made a sound since the building fell down. But he hopes she's just concussed or unconscious. But deep down, he knows she's gone. For a couple of days, we could get no information on anything. No, We rang all the hospitals and they wouldn't tell you anything. I think they might have known things, but they weren't giving anything out. And, um, yeah, it was just like these vanished people had vanished off the planet, you know what I mean? But I haven't heard that, uh, what you just said about finding mum, about mum and, uh, and where dad was and what have you. And um, so that completes a picture for me that his family, and I'd not even thought of that. Hang on, his family doesn't even know where he is, you know? And, and I don't really know how we found out they'd gone to the workers' club. Back at the workers' club, Playford is racing against time to save the others. He evaluates the situation. Three people are injured but alive. Norm Duffy, Nancy Hine and Maureen Polkinghorne. And one person is deceased, Miriam. They've avoided an aftershock, but one could arrive at any moment. If it does, they'll all be goners. Despite the imminent danger, Norm keeps positive, talking to Nancy and Maureen, easing their fears and keeping them calm. He even manages to keep Alan Playford's mind on the job. He said, ladies, he said, I can see the sun. We're going to be out in the sun shortly. It was actually my torch. That he could see, you know? And uh, I said, mate, you're right, we will be out in the sun, you know? Um, You just, you're doing a great job talking to the, keep talking, you know? So, yeah, okay, you know, and talk, talk, talk. It's good as that. So, Nancy Hain was this lady, and um, anyway, I worked for 20 minutes getting concrete dust off to get an IV in her, and I overdosed her on morphine, purposely. Did it on purpose. Oh, so... To give her a... Yeah. To give her a rest, yeah. sort of. Well, I sh- I, when I say overdosed... No, it, no. You give, I took her right up to the limits. Yes. See, we give it incrementally. I didn't have the time. The building could come in at any second. I had to get these ladies yes, out as expediently as I could. Yes. So I... Yep. And I said, uh, she's got a busted pelvis to, to um, Mal. I'm going to do the same thing as I was lowered in. I'm going to get the fire hose underneath her and you guys are going to take the weight. So Nancy came out first. It took about an hour to get Nancy out. With no proper ropes, Playford ties Nancy Hine to the fire hose and Mal Martin painstakingly lifts her up. She's in an incredible amount of pain, but eventually they get her out. And then tied the front of her hands together with a St John's triangular bandage. And she was screaming a lot of the time. And once she'd gone, it gave me a bit of room to move, you know? So she's gone and, and Mal and Nevy have taken her out. And that's where you see people in the Stokes litters being carried out onto the centre island. It was time to consider, do I do Norm or the lady that was trapped beside her? And he wouldn't have a bar of it. He said, mate, concentrate on her. I'll be right, you know. Anyway, um, to start on her, I had to slide down between them somehow and I put her torso up on Norm's waist. 
So she was then, and he's stroking her hair. Anyway, um, I, I don't know how I got her released, but I did, and I said to Mal, it'll be the same deal with the fire hose again. So I taped it round her arms together. She wasn't badly injured. She was, of all of them in there, she was the lightest injured. Oh, injured. luck, bit of luck, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, boy, she's gone. I've got heaps of room now. It's just Norman and me, you know? So we talked and we talked together, we discussed everything, politics. Norm is badly injured, but you wouldn't know it. With an endearing smile on his face, Norm stoically insists Maureen be saved before him, a woman he barely knows. It's an incredibly selfless act. With Nancy and Maureen out of the basement, only Norm remains. But he doesn't seem worried. He keeps chatting away, calming Playford as he assesses his injuries. Anyway, he talked about his wife and talked about you guys. Talked about his family and where he lived out at, at Railway Street, Whitebridge. Mm-hmm. And um, how I knew about Railway Street because I had a, man, a mate called Barry Sinclair that lived there and we were called up for national service together. And, uh. You know, so it was a kind of ridiculous thing, you know. <laughs> and all the time I'm down the end of him trying to work out how I'm going to bust this concrete up to to get him out. And there was no way they could put spreading equipment into me. It was just too tiny, you know. And I then worked out that if I could dig these bricks away from underneath and undermine it, I might be able to pull the stuff out from under him, release, letting his legs drop down. And that's what took so long was... was um, getting all this stuff dug out from underneath him, you know. After hours of tireless work, Playford uncovers Norm's legs, but it doesn't look good. They are badly crushed, similar to Albert Bender's. At some stage, I've gotten up beside him, cleaned him off, and I put a drip in him, and I hooked the ECG up to him, and I thought, holy Christ, look at this. And I put it up on a ledge, and you could see the tall PT waves, and I thought... Uh, he's got the crush syndrome. And he's been there that long with him insisting throughout, <laughs> I want to be the last. You know, you don't take me first because I'm, you know. Uh, mm. uh, I, I sort of regretted that because it had gone past the time where I knew the lactic acid would be of such uh, high concentration when I released him, it's going to go straight back to his heart and put him in cardiac arrest. And I thought, I'm not going to see this guy alive again, you know? Of all those trapped in the basement tomb of the workers' club, Norm Duffy was the worst injured. Had he been rescued first, he would almost certainly have avoided developing crush syndrome. But Norm wouldn't have it. He had to be the last one out. Now, as Alan Playford knows... It's too late. So, as I got him released, I, w- I worked like the Dickens to try and get this bloody fire hose around him to get him up. And they wanted to pass stretchers into me. I said, you can't pass a stretcher into me. It's, 
I can't get it in under his ass, you know, in under his back. It, it, the stretch is too big for the mm. hole. Mm. It's just norm, and um, and I've got to get him out as best I can, you know. And then, as I did, uh, the the tall peak T waves on the ECG. I thought, that's it. He's not going to last much longer, you know. Got him released, hooked the thing and tied it around the front. He said he could hold his hands. He'd, I didn't have to tie his hands. He could hold them because he understood. <laughs> to to mm. you know that he had to keep his yep, yep. hands couldn't join. And as he went up, I said to Mal, I said, "He is going to go off on you, mate." Um, he torpedo T waves a whole. He needs bicarb like yesterday, you know. And um, he said, "I'll I'll look after his scoop, you know." So I'm down this hole, looking up at Norm disappearing. <laughs> Mal's whizzed him into a Stokes letter. They've started CPR. When Norm Duffy is lifted out, he immediately suffers a heart attack. It's impossible to administer the medication he needs while inside the workers' club, so Mal Martin and the paramedics race him outside where doctors are waiting. For the first time in hours, everything in the basement goes quiet. Only Alan Playford remains and the body of Miriam Duffy. So I'm still down the hole, see? And I'm trying to get your mum out. Mm -hmm. I thought I can't leave her here. Um, And as much as I tried, the police rescue sergeant leaned over the thing and he said, you've got to leave her out because this place is so unstable. Yes. And I said, if I can just get this thing, he said, no. Lever, lever, and then he put the hose. I put the hose around myself, and they pulled me up out of there. Playford is pulled out, leaving Miriam's body behind. It'll be days before her son Michael or any of her children know where she is. On the nature strip outside, Mal Martin speaks with the local news crew about the fate of Albert Bender and Norm Duffy. There was one uh, elderly gentleman that we were working on that we, when we first got there, he was fully conscious. Um, we just simply couldn't get his legs out and unfortunately he bled to death while we were there. And uh, there's another one very similar that we've just pulled out that's uh, suffered a cardiac arrest. Uh, I don't know his status at the moment. So. Playford walks out of the workers' club covered in layers of cement dust. He can see all the commotion on the nature strip with doctors trying to save Norm, but he knows he's already gone. He grabs a water bottle and takes a sip, the first he's had in hours. He lowers his head and takes a long, exhaustive breath. There's nothing else he could have done. There are still a number of people that are unaccounted for, according to our records, and it'll be a matter of pulling the building to pieces and looking to see what we can find. As we saw in San Francisco with the earthquake, there's always a chance, and we haven't given up hope at this stage. A local news crew approaches Alan Playford sitting on the curb. He smiles timidly, but puts on a brave face, describing what it was like inside. One of the most incredible uh, entrapped situations I've worked in, and to see those people the way they were there, uh, hopelessly trapped under bricks, rubble and poker machines. The news crew thanks Playford and walks off. He slings his medical equipment over his shoulder and walks across to the median strip. He knows how this will end, 
but something inside him says he needs to check on Norm. As he gets closer, Mal Martin suddenly comes rushing out, a huge grin on his face. And Mal comes over and he says, we got him back, Al. I said, bullshit. <laughs> you bullshit me, eh? He said, no bullshit, mate, we've got it back. I said, for Christ's sake. <laughs> and yeah. I thought he was fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, we, he was, mate, but bicarbs worked, got him, got him going. Where is he now? And I said, on the way to the Royal Newcastle. Oh, cry. I said, you know, I was just speechless. And Mal, if you know Mal Martin, he's the guy to be around when shits his trumps, you know, because he went out there, doctors, this is what I want. I want bicarb, I want as much blood as you got. And he said, I'll, I'll put another line in the other arm this line's a patent line. Get the bicarb running in that and put the blood straight up on that, you know. So, and they're still doing CPR and Norm comes back into a rhythm. Said, right out, DC shock, 200 watt seconds. Snap, Norm comes back. And um, the ECG, when it was back into a rhythm, you could see the, the, the signature of the tall peak T waves reduce. They had him in the palm of their hands. All that was buggered up now is his mangled legs, you know. <laughs> yeah, I said later, that's the best Christmas present I ever received in my life. When Norm Duffy went up the fire hose from the basement of the workers' club on the afternoon of December 28, 1989, he immediately went into cardiac arrest and was pronounced dead on the sidewalk. But the doctors wouldn't give up and neither would Norm. A few minutes later, he came back. It was incredible. And it's gone down now, recorded in Roselle, in the annals of the New South Wales Ambulance. There's a first reversal of the crush syndrome um, in Australian emergency medical history. So he made medical history that day. And we, and we were great friends for the rest of his life, you know? That's right. We'd exchange Christmas cards. And yeah. When I've been in a tight situation ever since, I, I thought of Norm Duffy. And, you know, I went to Rwanda in Africa in the genocide and being up to me ears in shit there, you know, with people dying, I'd think of Norm. <laughs> of all things, I'd think of Norm. <laughs> and, um, and it's true, you know. 13 people died and a further 160 people were hospitalised as a result of the Newcastle earthquake. Nine were killed at the workers' club, three died on Beaumont Street and one person died of shock. The earthquake had a magnitude of 5.6 with a depth of 11.5 kilometres and an epicentre 15 kilometres southwest of the CBD. By global standards, it wasn't the largest earthquake but its proximity to the city was what made it so destructive. Over 300,000 people were affected by the earthquake, with 1,000 people made homeless. 50,000 buildings were damaged, with some condemned, and a repair bill of $4 billion Australian dollars, or $8.5 billion in today's money, or $6.5 billion US dollars. The rescue operation at the Newcastle Workers' Club went on for days, but Norm Duffy was the last person to be pulled out alive. It remains one of the worst natural disasters in Australian history. 
And once your dad was known, he he was a an icon for people to believe in, you know, to say this guy who actually died in there um, can be so positive about life and he's lost his wife to boot um, and yet this guy puts on a positive um, can-do attitude to everyone he met, you know. Mm-hmm. And I met him quite a few times after it and he yes. was always positive, yeah. always happy. Yes. Um, he- wonderful man. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Despite the mass destruction and loss of life caused by the Newcastle earthquake, Historian and Newcastle Museum director Julie Baird believes it actually could have been worse. If the earthquake had happened at 10.20 at night, not 10.20 in the morning, we would have lost probably about 30% of our youth all in one. If it was perhaps January 28th, all the schools that came down would have killed the kids. That probably cut down on the amount of impact on, on particularly generational change. We would have lost the kids and that devastates a city. Unlike most natural disasters, there's no evidence that earthquakes are increasing in frequency or magnitude due to global warming. For scientists, the challenge instead lies in how to anticipate and predict them. Seismologist Trevor Allen from Geoscience Australia explains. Earthquakes are very difficult to predict. I mean, we can certainly identify areas where earthquakes are more likely to occur than other regions across Australia. But the thing is, it, they are quite random events and they can occur in, in regions where historically we've experienced very few earthquakes in the past. Whilst we can say that some areas are more likely to experience earthquakes than others, we can still get these black swan events. Certainly, we know that earthquake is a, a natural peril that we need to be prepared for. And we should be prepared, but not alarmed. In the aftermath of the earthquake, Building codes were updated and structures are now far more resilient to the risk of an earthquake. The city of Newcastle rebuilt and banded together, but there would be more shocks to come. Newcastle had a series of events every 10 years, so the earthquake totally shook Newcastle up and then 10 years later BHP closed and then we had the Pasha storm. So it's like the beginning of a culture of resilience, which I think because of the steel and coal working class nature of the the city, there's always been a bit of that help yourself and and start those sort of building societies and that kind of thing. But this really was a a challenge uh, for Newcastle. There was a lot of people that were thinking about leaving Newcastle and after the earthquake happened, they did. They're now coming back. These are dead. (laughs) 
<laughs> you ever see that? No. It's gonna, that hasn't surfaced for years. But the 30th anniversary's just been on, and there's been one hell of a fuss in Newcastle over it. Alan Playford hands Michael Duffy a copy of the Newcastle Herald from December 1990. It's a fragile old newspaper clipping, but Alan has kept it safe over the years. On the cover, there's a painting by local artist Bridget Hansen, illustrating acts of heroism and bravery during the Newcastle earthquake. There are scenes of Novocastrians in stubby shorts and runners removing debris, emergency workers carrying the injured on stretchers, and volunteers handing canned food to those in need. At the centre of the image sits Norm Duffy, upright in a hospital bed with Alan Playford by his side. The two men are locked in a triumphant handshake, smiling proudly at the heart of it all. Legend has it when doctors at the Royal Newcastle Hospital told Norm Duffy his legs needed to be amputated after he was rescued from the workers' club, he stubbornly refused. Six months later, Norm walked out on his own two legs, albeit with a permanent limp. While some of the physical scars from the workers' club would never heal, the mental side of Norm's survival was less easy to see. You don't know what he was thinking of. Those blokes, they never talk about that. You know, the old blokes in those days, you know. They, no, it's a man thing, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. It is. um, well, I remember the guys who came back from the war when I was younger, you know, uh, they never talked about anything. It's as if it never happened, you know what I mean? But there were some cranky blokes and there was yeah. busted up marriages and all sorts of things. But, yeah, you know, they, even when they were up the pub drinking beer, say, but they still never would go there, you know. It was like a, an agreement with them all, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there were all these grandchildren out there and uh, so he was still the grandfather and so he'd be at every show... You know, mucking up and causing trouble. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He had to do mum's you know, job as well, you know, and he did all that and turned up everywhere as long as he got a beer, you know, right out, you know. Yeah. Just, so that's just, yeah, that's the sort of thing. Yeah, but yeah. me of a good bloke. Yeah. yeah. The Newcastle Workers' Club was demolished after the earthquake, but it was rebuilt and reopened by Prime Minister Paul Keating in 1992, going on to hold what locals refer to as the city's biggest ever celebration when the Newcastle Knights won their first National Rugby League Premiership in 1997. But the club ran into financial trouble in the late 90s, eventually selling to the Penrith Panthers NRL club and ultimately passing on to the Wests Group, a Newcastle not-for-profit organisation specialising in events, live music, functions and, you guessed it, the pokies. With doing so much work on the earthquake as part of my job, when I walk through Newcastle, I can tell exactly before and after shots. So, you know, I can look at the workers' club and and I can see exactly what it was like when it came down and what's there now. And it almost becomes a trick. If you're walking around Newcastle and you see light-coloured bricks and cream pipes and sage windows, you know that that's post-earthquake. Everything built in Newcastle in 1990 had that colour scheme. While Newcastle eventually rebuilt, the trauma from the earthquake would take a lot longer to heal. I arrived in Newcastle in 2002 and people would still phone me at least once a month in tears about the, the threat or the thought an earthquake was going to happen or had happened. So I think that the physical reminders of the earthquake are still with us. I, I live in a house with a crack in the porch. The 
intellectual remnants of how we rebuild are very strong. But the trauma, I think, lasted for a very long time. In March 2008, Norm Duffy passed away, 17 years after the earthquake. Well, you're not going to believe this, this but this is absolutely factual. Neville and I were a team from the earthquake on, you know. I've worked with Nev a lot, you know. Yeah. Norm passed away and who responded to him was <laughs> Neville. I was supposed to be with Nev. Uh-huh. But the way the roster was, I was going to join Nev tomorrow night on night shift. But tonight it was Neville and one of the other blokes, you know. Now Neville went to Norm, got him back, zapped him and got your dad going. Yeah. And... Neville, who was with Norm in the, uh, in the workers' club in the earthquake, got him again at the end of his life. Just but the him. irony of it was, if I'd have been with Neville, it would have been the same team <laughs> that went to him in the, in the earthquake. When I heard, I said, you got him going again? <laughs> you know? That's right. You, yeah, I, you have a me on. He said, no, Al, we got him again. Two cardiac arrests and he comes out of both of them. Yeah? Yes. But he wasn't mucking around the second time. No, he wasn't mucking around the second time. He had enough then. Yeah, the heart had 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 enough shocks in his life, I think. You rarely meet someone in your life like him. Inspirational. Over 30 years ago, the earth under Newcastle shook and rattled a city to its core. For many, it was the worst day of their lives, something that defined them. Many still struggle with it today. But for paramedic Alan Playford, Meeting Norm Duffy in the basement tomb of the Workers' Club changed his life for the better. It made him the man he is today. I was just the lotto winner that went to Norm Duffy, you know? And really, I'm the luckiest man on earth because his influence changed my life. The Elements is hosted by me, Stuart Diver. It's written and produced by Tim Russell with audio production and original music by Slade Gibson. Researcher and assistant producer is Claire O'Halloran. Special thanks to NBN Newcastle for the audio used in this episode. This show would not be possible without the help of survivors, emergency first responders and the people of Newcastle, New South Wales. We thank them and pay tribute to all those who lost loved ones and were affected by the earthquake.